Well, let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. What makes a great church? What makes a great church? Maybe I should let that settle for a while so that you really are thinking about it. Is it, is it a warm welcome and a sense of belonging? Is it uh, primarily great music? Is it a nice modern building with great facilities? Is the thing that makes a church great being culturally relevant? Is it important to have good activities for children and young people? Should a church be traditional or contemporary? Should there be a concern for social issues and social justice? Or should a church just preach the gospel and leave all that stuff to politicians? Is the thing that makes a great church a sense of vision and purpose? Is the thing that makes a church great having good leaders? <laughs> That's a scary one for me to say, isn't it? Oh, how hard it is. Well, it's the hardest job in the world. People want leaders that they can relate to, don't they? And let their heart head on with once in a while. Uh, good leaders, I suppose. We want our leaders to be holy, but not so holy that they're a bit scary. We want our leaders to know the Bible, but not to show off and make us feel like we don't know anything. Our leaders, we want them to be confident without being arrogant. We want them to be sensitive without being weak and a bit soft. We want our leaders perhaps to be interested in us, but not intrusive. And we certainly want their sermons to be interesting and engaging, and maybe even short. Perhaps... Um, Perhaps you want a church that is serious but doesn't take itself too seriously. Should churches insist on commitment, loyalty, focus? Or would you rather be in the kind of church that is just there when you need it to be? If you're a visitor, you, you, you have to think about all these things as you evaluate this church. And try to work out whether it's a healthy church. If you're a member of this church as well, don't switch off because it is possible that you might move to a different area. And then you'll be asking these questions. What is it that makes a healthy church? And for those of us who are fully involved here in this church, we need to know surely, don't we? What we're about and what we're trying to build by God's grace so that we can participate in it meaningfully. So I ask again, what is it that makes a great church? Is that something that you think about? Do you ever stop and ask yourself why you even come to church? Is that something that you think about? Or is it just something that you do as a habit? A lot of people in our modern culture say things like, I do have faith, but I don't really want to be part of an established church. Organised religion just doesn't really fit with me. I think too there are a lot of people in churches who feel fed up. I wish my church was X, Y or Z. People are often dissatisfied with church but they can't quite put their finger on what it is that they're looking for. I'm not sure in history if there has ever been a more confusing time 
than the times we live in. But what a great opportunity we have to cut through all the guff in a way and, uh, and try to be really crystal clear about what we're about as a church. Part of the reality for us is that we're living in times of tremendously rapid change. Lots of clever people write lots of stuff about this. I, I think my parents have seen incredible changes in their lifetime. Some of you are older than my parents. Since the 1960s, the cultural changes that have happened have had huge impact on our churches as well, which is probably inevitable. Sometimes churches are so keen to reflect cultural change that they forget who they are and lose their distinctive message. Some churches are so afraid of change that they just retreat and never change and end up isolated and disengaged from the culture. And one of the great challenges for us is to be engaged without compromising. And that's a huge challenge when things are changing so quick, isn't it? Well, I'm saying all that really to introduce a new series where over this next quarter through the rest of January, February and March, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be a healthy church. I'm very grateful to Jai for this excellent logo, all his own work. I think this is one of our apples from our fruit bowl that he photographed and made into an excellent logo. What does it mean to be a healthy church? As we've been talking, I suppose, as a leadership team, part of the stimulus for this series is, is a book um, I, I actually read it a couple of years ago by an American minister called Mark Dever I, I, I wanted to show you but I've left it at home and, and he, he wrote a book entitled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church and the book was a result of a preaching series that he did in, the, in their church in Washington in America I don't want you to ever think that we're basing sermons on, the, on a book but I think this book is so helpful and there are some great biblical principles in it. So we're going to base some of our thoughts, not all of them, as we work through the next few weeks. What do you think would be number one? The number one mark of a healthy church? I've asked you some questions already. Well, here's what Mark Dever thinks, and I agree with him. Number one, the first mark of a healthy church is the priority given to preaching the word of God. If that's right, generally, all of the other things will be right to you. But if this is wrong, it is likely that all of the other things will be wrong to you. So I'm going to start here. There's lots of things we could say. I'm sure you're buzzing with ideas already. But no church will be a healthy church unless preaching the word of God is a priority Quite a few years ago now, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I would say without any hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. All the other things you might look for in a church pale into insignificance compared to this. If you're evaluating a church, this one or another one, this is the first question to ask. It is good if you can have all the other things as well, 
and maybe they will flow in time from good preaching. But if you had to choose, for example, between a church that was friendly, but the preaching was poor, or a church where the preaching was good and the people were unfriendly, choose preaching. It's a poor example, I know. And I hope that if the preaching was good, the people would be friendly. But I'm just making the point that of all the things you could look at, this is the number one priority. It is more important than music. It is more important than the style of building. It is more important than any other consideration. And if you know that, great. It's good to be reminded. If you're surprised at me putting this as number one, then uh, stick with me as we go through this. And hopefully by the end, you'll see what I mean as we think this through together. I think um, straight away it raises the question, doesn't it, of what preaching really is and whether it has any relevance. Even just talking about preaching being crucial can sound ridiculous in our modern culture. I think people in churches and outside of churches can relegate preaching to something that is from the dim and distant past. It's from a bygone age. It's something quaint. It's equated with the traditional ways of the past that we've kind of grown up from. We're really living in different times now and preaching sounds authoritarian. It sounds heavy. It sounds oppressive. Even the word itself has negative connotations. What church that prioritises preaching could possibly be popular? What could be worse, some people would say, than sitting in a church listening to a guy talk from the Bible for a while? I've got so many more important things to do than that. So, here's my first question. Why is preaching so out of fashion? Um, Do you ever wonder about that? Why is preaching so out of fashion? Well, I think, first of all, people can generally be quite suspicious of people who preach. Um, Let me give you some illustrations. I was reading a great essay this week by a famous theologian, Jim Packer. The essay was called, Why Preach? That's a good good title for an essay. Why Preach? It's a good question. He starts with six reasons why preaching has fallen out of favour. And his sixth reason is that public speech as a communication tool is not really trusted anymore. If anyone stands up and seeks to preach, in inverted commas, even not in a religious sense, we're immediately suspicious and cynical of them. What's in it for them? What's their agenda? Where are they coming from? Can I trust this person? Anyone who stands up and seeks to talk to other people publicly in times past people like that would be held in great esteem but not so in our modern culture Martin Lord Jones who we mentioned actually had a name for this he called it Baldwinism Um, as as early as the 1960s there was a Prime Minister in Britain called Stanley Baldwin and he wasn't a great speaker and he was surrounded by other men both before him and after him who were very powerful orators And he knew that he couldn't compete. He he couldn't speak like these other men could speak. He didn't have the turn of phrase. He didn't have the presence. And so he tried to position himself as a plain, honest Englishman. And he would say things like, what you'll get from me is honesty and action rather than talk. 
What he was implying was that anyone who could speak either couldn't be trusted or couldn't be bothered to actually do something. That was how he kind of coped with that sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it Baldwinism. What Baldwin is forgetting, I think, is that even from a human perspective, what is interesting is that the greatest men of action in history have generally been good speakers. No one even remembers Stanley Baldwin, but I bet you all remember Churchill. <laughs> so Baldwin can argue till he's blue in the face that speaking doesn't matter, but actually, it does. Leaders who can inspire a crowd, people who can catch the mood and infuse and motivate people to do things. The greatest men of action in history haven't been lazy or liars. Generally, they could belt out an inspiring speech. In our more recent culture, there's a real issue with us being, as a culture, very anti-authority. We're just naturally suspicious of anyone who seeks to impose their views on other people. We wonder what their motives are. We wonder why they're doing it. And we might say, that person's all talk. Why should I bother listening to anyone who's wanting to tell me what to do? So I think in our modern culture, that's one reason why preaching is maybe falling out of fashion. Secondly, when you add to that, the fact that we live in such a visual and informational age, to have to listen to a sermon, if I want to know something, I can just Google it. I I can find out myself if I want to know something. I don't have to sit and listen to someone else talking to me. If I can't Google it, I'll find out from Facebook or Wikipedia or some other place. I don't need to waste time listening to someone tell me what to do or what to think. Maybe if they showed more pictures. Maybe if there was a little bit of drama or some interesting stories. Something softer, less confrontational, a bit more attention grabbing than just words. Actually, when I go to church, I'm so tired. What I really need is a pep up. And just having to listen to a sermon is really difficult I do like the singing it's really great to meet people but the sermon part is like a necessary evil that I just have to put up with to gain the other benefits is that how we think sometimes sometimes the sermon can be boring there's no doubt about that Um, there, there are so many preachers you shouldn't really go anywhere near a pulpit perhaps But sometimes the issue isn't the preacher, is it? Sometimes the issue is the fact that we have such short attention spans that we can't cope with anything that isn't visual or we we can't cope with anything that makes us think a little bit. In just doing some prep uh, this week, I came across another article about secular society. And I was really staggered by this article, mainly because it was written in 1972. And this guy was writing about modern man in 1972. And he said three things. He said, modern people in our secular culture have no ability to stop and contemplate. They have no sense of transcendence. And they have no sense of dependence. In other words, he's saying that modern people, they they don't know what they're here for. 
and yet they're supremely confident about being able to solve the problems in society. Forty years later, his words almost sound prophetic. In a culture where everyone rushes around attending to things that don't really matter, as if they really do matter, and acting as if they will live forever without a care for anything beyond this life, is it any wonder that preaching is relegated to the bottom of our priorities? Information overload. Very secular culture. Third thing that I wanted to say is that another reason why preaching can be relegated is that we underestimate our real needs. What we think we need is emotional well-being, social and material well-being, a sense of belonging to something, good experiences that make us feel nice. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But you can have all those things and still end up in hell. Can't you? If preaching is all about helping people to feel better and feel more comfortable and more able to cope with all the kind of ups and downs of life and it doesn't address our deepest spiritual needs, it isn't really preaching, is it? The issue for us is that our deepest needs are not social, emotional, they're spiritual first and foremost. Our natural rebellion against God, our need for a saviour, our need for forgiveness from our sinful tendencies and behaviours. What we need to hear is often not what we think we need to hear. Our greatest need, surely, is to hear what God thinks, not what culture thinks. Preaching is crucial because more than anything, we need to know God's truth, God's light, God's transforming words, rather than soft encouragements that don't really deal with our primary needs. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking about the the teachers of his day, says... They dress the wound of my people as though it was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The teachers were just trying to comfort everyone when actually something was very wrong. What an awful thing for preachers to preach peace when there is no peace. We need to know about salvation and spiritual realities, don't we? Fourthly, And lastly, I think the truth is that people have very little confidence in God's word. If you could draw a graph of confidence in God's word and then a graph of preaching going out of fashion, I think those two things would go hand in hand, wouldn't they? I think this is um, really important. If you don't think that God has anything to say, or that the Bible's out of date, or not true, or it's just a collection of man-made writings that are interesting but not binding. (coughs) Preaching will be weak and insipid. What will happen is that it will slowly change into little talks on ethics, moral instruction, nice stories, but it won't have any authority or power or conviction to make any real difference to people spiritually, will it? 
I came across a great book this week on my shelf upstairs about preaching and it had this inscription in the front of it. I thought this was brilliant. To the men and women who keep a sacred appointment, bewildered by seductive voices, nursing wounds that life has inflicted on them, anxious about matters that do not matter, yet they come. Why? They come to hear a clear word from God that speaks to their condition. That's the key issue, isn't it? Hearing a clear word from God. If there's one priority that will determine whether a church is healthy, it's surely this. Is the word of God preached? Will I hear God's voice in this place? Let's move on. Here's a second idea. Preaching then surely involves hearing God's word. I just want to say um, three, three things I think about, about this and then we'll get into uh, thinking about God's word. Um, first of all, I want to say that it is the Bible that creates the church and not the other way around. Maybe a little history will help us to grasp this. Up until the Reformation in the 16th century, the idea would be, the unchallenged idea would be that the church owned the Bible. The church was the master, the custodian, the interpreter of the Bible. There would have been this idea of anyone who stands in a pulpit would have, would have descended in an unbroken line by the laying on of hands from the very first disciples. And the idea would be, if a man was a clergyman, he must have some authority. For goodness sake, he's a clergyman. The church had a Latin motto. And it was the motto, Semper Idem. Always the same. Never changing. The Reformation across Europe in the 16th century brought huge change. And people began to grasp that the church doesn't own or create the Bible. Actually, the Bible is God's word and it creates the church. And authority doesn't reside in some sort of ecclesiastical office, but it resides in faithfulness to the Bible being God's word. Actually, God's word judges us we don't sit over God's word judging it the reformers also had a motto semper reformanda always being reformed by God's word they knew that it was God's word that created the church not the church that had created God's word it's a massive difference uh, secondly, what's important here is not the preacher's pet subjects as well. And uh, Well, I'm preaching and this is a, a big subject for me. <laughs> so I'm breaking my rule here, but you understand it's important. James Packer argues against the idea of preaching topically. Listen to this for a quote. Sermons explore announced themes rather than biblical passages 
Whatever the reason, however, the results are unhealthy. In a topical sermon, the text is reduced to a peg on which the speaker hangs his line of thought. The thrust of his message reflects what he thinks is good for his people. But the only authority his sermon can have is the human authority of a knowledgeable person speaking with emphasis, perhaps raising their voice. He goes on to say, preaching is not speaking for the Bible or about the Bible, but it's allowing the Bible to speak for itself. The whole art of preaching is trying to work out what God is saying, not what the preacher is saying. It isn't the preacher superimposing his own ideas on the Bible or using the Bible to back up his own hunches. So I want to say to you this morning, when we gather in church on a Sunday, what is going on here is very sacred. I'm not inviting you to come to church to listen to me or to Richard or to Joe or to some other visiting preacher. I'm not wanting you to be here to make me feel better. What we're doing is gathering together as a church family to hear God speak to us. What is God saying to me? What is God saying to us as a church family? What is God saying to our culture? One of the great problems with trying to be relevant too much, it's important to be relevant, but one of the problems with making that our primary goal is that we begin to reflect culture instead of speaking God's word into culture. There's a a well-known Christian writer called Os Guinness. And he, he said this, The preacher, instead of looking out upon the world, looks out upon public opinion. Trying to find out what the public would like to hear. Then he tries his best to duplicate that and brings his finished product into a marketplace in which everyone else is trying to do the same thing. And the public come, they turn to our church culture to find out about the world and all they discover is nothing but the world's own reflection. It's really important to avoid pet subjects. And thirdly, preaching surely is designed to evoke a response. Preaching isn't just about giving information, but it is information plus application, isn't it? This is why it's crucial that preaching as a medium is is preserved. The idea that there's no other medium that is so well suited being persuasive. This is how God reveals himself. He speaks and then he tells us how to respond to what he tells us. You can't do that in a picture. You need to use words. Preach the word. And it's not just an intellectual thing, giving information for you to go home and think, well, I've learned something today, that's great. The the idea is, what do I need to do with that? How how can I respond to what God is speaking to me? Is my life changing? Is there a response of faith and obedience? That's the idea behind true preaching. Okay, well, let's uh, think about God's word. I want to try and uh, trace this a little bit through the Bible. He's still with me? Good. I've just got two things, but the first one we're going to dwell on, and the second one we're going to just uh, sketch over, and then we'll conclude. I want to say that the Word of God brings life. 
The word of God brings life. It has creative power. In Genesis, um, we're told the creation account, God said, God said, let there be, and there was. The idea in Genesis is that God, who is uncreated, eternal, by the power of his word, brings things into being. His word is a creating word. It brings life. I counted this week 11 times in chapter 1 of Genesis where we're told, God said, and then there was. God speaks, and things come into being by his powerful word. Secondly, God's word is full of promise. We then read in Genesis, don't we, of Adam and Eve rebelling against God, and yet God comes to them and he speaks again, and in the midst of judgment and curses, God promises that the evil that has polluted his world will not ultimately prevail. Do you remember what God said? That someone born of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Someone born of woman. A real human being will be born one day who will enter into a fight with this serpent and will crush him. Right there. That's the first word of hope, isn't it? God speaking and promising that evil will not prevail. He's going to do something about it. Thirdly, God's word calls things into existence. Remember dear old Abraham. When you read Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was a pagan man. He was a believer in God. His culture worshipping the moon God. Um, climbing up the, we've shown pictures of it, climbing up the steps of the ziggurat, sacrificing their children to the moon god, Ningal. That was the culture that Abraham grew up. Outside the Bible, legend has it, that Abraham's father was an idol maker. And God comes to him. What does he do? He speaks to him. Abraham, I will be your shield and your reward. Abraham, I want you to leave the land that you're in and go to a place that I'll show you. Abraham, will you put your hand in my hand and follow me? Do you know what Abraham did? He believed God. And he set out and moved out in obedience to God who had spoken to him. Abraham didn't create God's word. He didn't ask for it. He didn't write it. He didn't create it. Abraham responded to God's word. God's word was the creative influence. And Abraham becomes the father of God's people. Why? Because God spoke to him and called him to himself. This is really important. God's people are created and called into existence and made visible in the world by hearing God's promise and believing and following God. God calls Abraham to a new life. You can now see in the world God's people. They become visible. Why? Because God's called them into existence. What about Moses later on? 
You know the story, Abraham's descendants grow into a, a nation. They go into Egypt to escape famine and they grow numerous and then they're subjected to the most awful slavery. And God comes to Moses in the desert to bush on fire. And what does God do? He speaks to him. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses says, oh Lord, please send someone else. But God speaks to him. And he sends him. And the ultimate result is that a whole nation leave Egypt and begin their journey to the land that God has promised them. How, how, how does that happen? It happens because God speaks. His powerful word comes to them and brings a nation into existence. The people of God wouldn't exist if God didn't speak. And the whole of the Old Testament is about God speaking to and through his people. Apparently, I'm told, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to someone, occurs nearly 4,000 times in the Old Testament. God calls people to himself. He reveals himself. He explains who he is and how they must respond to him. Let, let me say this as well. If, if, if someone said to you, how do you define the people of God as a group? Who are these people? Are they the people who wear strange clothes and meet in that strange building on a Sunday? No. The people of God are defined by the people. They are the people who have heard God's word and who have responded to it and followed him individually and corporately. God calls his people into being by speaking. That's why the word of God is so central. The word of God is not created by man. It isn't the opinions of man. It is the Lord God who's speaking. There's a brilliant example in the Old Testament. You'll know the story of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. You know that story? It's a, a song, isn't it? Dem bones, dem bones. They're, and they're all connected to each other. Ezekiel is taken by God in a vision to a valley filled with heaps of dry bones. It just looks like a a graveyard, horrible scene. All piled up bones, disconnected, jumbled up, a great mass of them. God says to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And he's a great diplomat, Ezekiel. He says, Oh God, only you know. Only you know. That's a great answer, that, isn't it? Can these bones live? Well, I don't want to say yes, but only you know, God. Well, God's very gracious to him. And he says to him, Ezekiel, what I want you to do is preach to the bones. Are you sure, Lord? Oh, man, sometimes it feels like that's my job on a Sunday morning. But they, they, they come, and, and, and Ezekiel is told by God to preach to the dry bones. And he did. And what happens? The bones begin to move and rattle and sort themselves into order. Tendons and skin... And eventually the whole valley is like a mighty army of men, living, breathing. What's God trying to teach Ezekiel? That the word of God is life-giving. When God speaks, things are brought into existence. Life is born. God's word is powerful, calling, creating, inspiring, giving life. And what an encouragement that is to preachers. I can't make anyone live. Only God can bring life. 
But how does he bring life? He does it through his word being preached and taught. It reminds us of Jesus as well, doesn't it? Once Jesus met a deaf man. I'll say that again. Once Jesus met a deaf man. And he said to him, he said to him, be opened to his ears. He's deaf. How can a deaf man hear someone telling him his ears to be opened? And his ears are opened. How does that work? Because the word of Christ is powerful, life-giving. What Jesus is demonstrating is that his word is not just information, but it has power to achieve that for which it's sent. The supreme picture of Jesus is Jesus, isn't it? In John's Gospel, we're told that Jesus is the word of God. He is the living God. Everything God wants to say, really, is summed up by him sending Jesus into the world. The word of God is not only written down for us to go back to again and again and again, but it's embodied in the living word, Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is healing people, and then he goes off on his own to pray, and the disciples are looking for him. And when they find him, they say to him, everyone's looking for you. Where on earth have you been? There's people to heal, people to see, things to do. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages. Why? So that I can preach. That is why I have come. Jesus himself comes into the world, the light of the world, the living word. And he comes to preach. In his book, Mark Dever is at pains to say that he doesn't want to give the impression that Christianity is just a whole bunch of words and it isn't just a whole bunch of words but at the same time words are crucial aren't they sometimes some, some of you have got pets and sometimes people say to me oh I do love my dog he, yeah, I, know, I know he can't talk to me but when I come home I've had a bad day at work and my dog just comes and licks me and he's so pleased to see me I can see his little tail wagging or her little tail wagon, I don't want to be sexist about dogs. And you can just see those big puppy dog eyes and he licks you and you feel all warm inside. Even when everyone else misunderstands me. Even when other people desert me, my little dog is so faithful. Always there for me. Loves me unconditionally. I don't need words. I can guarantee you, if that's you, and you go home today and your dog says to you, hello, how was church today? That your relationship with your dog would change. Apart from jumping out of your skin, your relationship with your dog would change. Words are important, aren't they? We can live without them to a degree, but we're made for relationship. And relationship is predicated on words. But in Christianity, it is, it is more than that in a way, isn't it? The truth is that we can't guess what God is like. We only have two choices really, don't we? If we want to know what God is like, we can make a whole bunch of stuff up. Or we could listen to what God says about himself. We can only really know the living God when we listen to him revealing himself 
through his word as he explains and makes sense of the world and our life. Deva says, either God speaks or we are forever lost in the darkness of our own speculation. How relevant that is to our culture. Either God speaks or we are forever lost in the darkness of our own speculation. We're sinners and we need God's light and truth to come to us. Let me uh, read to you uh, another quote from, uh, from Mark Dava here. I, I, I can't say it better than this. God has made us to know him. But we have sinned, separated ourselves from him. Therefore God in his great love has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life taking our flesh and our infirmities. He died on the cross specifically as a substitute for all of those who would ever turn to him and trust in him. And he has been raised by God from the dead as a testimony that God has accepted this sacrifice and that he calls us now to repent and trust in him even as Abraham trusted in the word of God as it came to him. Trusting in Jesus is the way to be forgiven, saved, brought into God's family. And so we see again that God is creating a people through his word. And his greatest word is Christ himself. So let's go back to our first question. What makes a great church? Well, the word of God surely must be absolutely central because God creates his people by his word being preached and then responding to its message. Now, of course, you could create groups of people in all sorts of ways, couldn't you? And we do this, don't we, in our society. We, you could create ethnic groups, you could create interest groups, you could create music groups, care groups, project-related groups. You could get people motivated about all sorts of different things and create groups. But God's people are not created or defined by these things, even though they're all important, the church of God is created and then lives around the word of God. And the thing that marks out the people of God is whether they've heard and responded in faith and repentance to God's word. You, the, the warning here is that you could attend a church physically and yet not be part of God's people spiritually. If you're hearing God's word and yet not responding to it, maybe you're not part of God's people because that's what defines God's people. Do you believe God's word? Is there fruit in your life of change as you respond and repent and, and trust in Christ? I want to say as well, this is where your assurance as a Christian believer comes from. If, if you could have asked Abraham, how do you know that God is with you? How do you know that God is for you? I'm sure Abraham would say, well, I feel nice and warm inside. No, he wouldn't. What Abraham would say is, the reason I know that God is for me is because he's told me. He's spoken to me. He's made promises to me. And I believe him. That's where his assurance was. He didn't look inside. 
His confidence was grounded in what God had said to him. Do you feel confident as a Christian? Where are you looking? If someone said to you, how do you know that God is with you? Well, uh, well I think he is. I'm sure. the, the answer to that question is because he tells me he's with me in his word. That's where your assurance is. Martin Luther, great reformer in the 16th century, someone asked him how he had achieved all that he achieved. And he, do you know what he said? I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. Preaching. Was it just invented by the church to bore people? No. Preaching is God's idea to save people. I was reading yesterday in my own Bible reading, Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist's dad going into the temple on his own and the angel appears to him and says, you're going to have a child, your prayers have been heard. And, and the angel says to him, your son, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. When he's born and he grows, he's going to bring people back. How on earth is he going to do it? Well, when you read on, in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, we're told, John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching. How did, how was it, how did God use him to bring people back? He raised him up to preach. And what about Jesus? Jesus, in his last command to his disciples, said at the end of Mark's Gospel, Go into all the world and form committees. Go into all the world and take surveys. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. God's word brings life. It's creative. It calls things into existence. I said we'd spend a lot more time on that one. So let's um, just talk about one of the think more briefly God's word sustains life and brings growth Jesus when he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil do you remember the devil coming to him with temptations and what was it Jesus said to him he quoted from Deuteronomy and he said to the devil man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God spiritual life is nourished and nurtured and strengthened by the word of God that's where the Christian life begins and that's how it carries on in the Old Testament the great visual aid in the Old Testament is that when the people neglected God's word they fell into weakness and difficulty and as soon as they recovered a sense of the importance of God's word they were revived and helped and strengthened some people ask the question in our modern world, why is it that the church in the West is so weak? Uh, is, is it because preaching is so out of fashion? Uh, is there a correlation there somehow? That's the case in the Old Testament. There's a great story of a godly young king called Josiah. Do you remember him? He reigned at the time when the people were in great decline. When he was 26 years old, he sent people to repair the temple and they found the word of God written, the law of God, covered in dust. No one had seen it for years. 
<laughs> the Bible's been in, under a pile of rubble. They were doing all sorts of other stuff, but they weren't listening to God's word. And when he read it, it says in the Bible, he tore his clothes as he realised how far as a nation they'd fallen from God. And he set about as king restoring the nation to godliness in response to God's word. We might say that Josiah did it by the book. They found the book and they did it by the book. It's true in the New Testament as well, isn't it? As early as Acts chapter 2. The newly established baby church is identified by its devotion to the teaching of the apostles. That's what defined them. If you're looking for a church, the number one question you should be asking is, is preaching the central priority of this church? If other things are not right, don't, don't worry about other things. If the preaching if, if, if people are preaching God's word, that's the most important thing. Angela read to us, when Paul was coming to the end of his life, he writes to his protege, Timothy, what does he urge him to do? Is it form committees, take opinion polls, organise programmes? No. He says to him very bluntly, Timothy, preach the word. In the very early church, they survived a lot of things. Outward persecution, inward hypocrisy. But when growth meant practical problems started happening, what do the apostles do in Acts chapter 6? They appoint other godly men to deal with practical things because their priority was preaching. Listen to what the apostles said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to wait on tables we will turn this responsibility over to others and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Maybe in our modern culture, many Christians will say we need different methods of communication. People have short attention spans. We're not so biblically literate. We need to be creative. We need to create a sense of belonging and appeal to people's emotions and experiences. People can't tolerate anything that makes them think too much. Oh, none of those things are bad things. But actually, it is pre preaching is precisely what this culture needs. In a, in a culture where everyone is either confused or confusing, where everyone's trying to work out their own truth on their own at home, where everyone looks on any kind of authority as wrong and harmful, what could be more appropriate than for us all to gather corporately and listen for a while to the one who stands at the front in the place of God giving his word to us while we contribute nothing except listening to it and then acting on it. What could be more appropriate than that? You're not coming here primarily to be entertained although it does help if the preacher is interesting. You're not coming here to be complimented, although it helps if the preacher is sympathetic and respectful. You're not coming to hear the latest social theories, although there's nothing wrong with examining all of that. You're not really even coming to hear a preacher. You're coming to something far more glorious than that. You're coming to hear the word of God. 
This is how you live. This is how you grow. This is how light is shed on your life. This is for your encouragement and warning and correction and challenge. This is where you'll hear what God is like and what he's done for you through Christ. This is where you'll make sense of your griefs and sorrows and joys and hopes and bring them all to God to be shaped by, not by culture, but by his word. This is where you'll hear a word that will save you and bring you eternal life. This is where you'll hear how God commands you to live and find his resources to encourage and inspire you to help you to live that way in the power of his spirit. What are the marks of a healthy church? Surely above all it's a place where the word of God is preached. Is it not the case that everything else depends on that? I get a lot of emails some of you do, some of them I don't even read because I can see from the subject it'll be a waste of time but imagine for one moment in my inbox there was an email that said from God I think I'd probably read that one in all the noise of all the other waste of information the one thing that is really crucial is paying attention to God's word isn't it In our church, we do want many things. We're going to think about some of them over the next few weeks. Good things. But our most important priority is to gather together as a church family around the word of God and listen to his voice. If you are a Christian believer, make sure that you build your life around this one great priority. Do not allow anything else in your life to crowd this priority out. Because nothing is more important than being in a place where God speaks. Pray that God would speak. Pray that right here our experience would be to encounter the awesome living God as we hear his word together. And can I I make this play as well? Never ever come to church with low expectations. Don't come to church with low expectations. This is the most amazing privilege. Go to sleep on a Saturday night looking forward to Sunday morning and go to sleep praying, God, speak to me tomorrow. And then when you get up on a Sunday morning, try and get up with a spring in your step and say, today's Sunday, the best day of the week. Today's the day I get to go to church and hear God speak to me. How good is that? I'm sorry to shout. Don't ever take this for granted. Don't ever think that this doesn't matter and that you can take it or leave it and still live as a strong Christian. You can't. Don't ever come to church with low expectations. Come with high expectations. God, speak to me. If you're not yet a Christian believer... Know this too, that God calls you too. You're a sinner, just like the rest of us here are. You are headed to meet God, and not in a good way. And he speaks to you too, and commands you to come and trust yourself to Jesus before it is too late.
Don't rely on just being here and coming to church and thinking that makes you right. It doesn't. You need to personally put your faith and confidence in God's word to you. To confess your sins and turn from them, believing that he'll forgive you. And coming to live in the light of his word. Will you come even this morning and believe in him and stand on his promises to you personally?